This episode, we're off to study the Hindu religion of India, where we'll find... Don't make a dad joke. Don't make a dad joke. We'll find out where the term better half really comes from. Sorry, low-hanging fruit is apparently my kryptonite. And for our fact, we'll learn about an entire group of intersex people blessing Indian couples for thousands of years, giving you your bi-weekly dose of cheesy and endearing here on the Colored Folklore Podcast. Episode 13, Asia, Hindu Intersex Deity. Welcome to the podcast, everybody! Why, yes, that was my SpongeBob SquarePants singing the Goofy Goober song impersonation. So nice of you to notice. Helping us to rock out up top there is the song Mr. Mischief, which opens and closes each one of our episodes, given to you courtesy of the London Collective All Good Folks. Rolling all up and down your screen is the Trickster logo extraordinaire from our one, the only, Arthur, and making you jump right up out of your seat with her phenomenal podcast cover artwork is Jacqueline. And I am that gushing, guffawing, goobering, disembodied voice, Gree Omenma, helping you fill your day with facts and fables about the indigenous populations the world over. Last episode saw us maxing and relaxing in the Hawaiian Islands with their Akane Pantheon, <laughs> you know what that means now, featuring Kamapua'a and Pele. Today, we'll be jumping on over to Asia for a lesson in their religion and their rich mythology. Just like in Episode 7, this week we'll be taking a look at a religion and its people. Also, just like in Episode 7, this week is set in one of the famed sites on the planet where civilization is thought to have originated. Modern science believes that human beings first hit the land that one day would be known as India about 73,000 to 55,000 years ago. So, yeah, been a hot minute. The transition from foraging to agriculture took place about 7,000 years before current era, marked by evidence of plant and animal domestication. The Indus Valley Civilization first took shape about 4,500 BCE, flourished between 2500 and 1900 BCE, and it was near 1000 BCE when the population scattered throughout the area and spread the seeds for the precursor religious variants which would one day lead to Hinduism. 600 BCE saw a rise of urban centers throughout the subcontinent, and alliances led to the rise of many states which were eventually conquered by the Mauryan Empire. From 200 BCE forward, the land that would be India was ruled by a series of dynasties for nearly two millennia. It was during this time that Hinduism began to firmly take shape and gain definition. Scholastic accounts vary wildly, saying Hinduism first began to take shape anywhere from 700 current era all the way up to 1700. It seems that literature began to give a rise to Hindu as a cultural identity between the 13th and 17th century, when it then also began to take shape as a religious identity. Interesting in one sense, and base ignorant in another, it wasn't until the middle of the 20th century that the rest of the world would allow for a distinction between Hindu, Buddhism, Sikh, and Yanni. This is mind-boggling to me, being that there are over a billion Hindus on the planet, making it the third largest religion after Christianity and Islam. Over 90% of these people live in India, and besides the US, the UK, and the UAE, most all of the additional 10% exist in Southeast Asia. The word Hindu itself comes from the Sanskrit word Sindhu, which means 
a large body of water. This was, of course, in reference to the Indus River and its tributaries. The river and body of water allowed for the fertile area in which early mankind and civilization were able to thrive. The term seems to be first wielded by those in the ancient Middle East to describe the people who lived beyond the river. At the time, it seems that this was a purely geographical term. Though, later on, Muslims from the same area would use this term to describe other East Asian religions that were not Islam. So, this is where the grouping of Buddhism at all would come from. And I retract my earlier shade about the lumping in of all religions. Hinduism, both as a culture and as a religion, would come to describe the concept of spirituality in unimaginably poetic ways. One particularly apt comparison reads as, and I quote, No culture in the world has produced as many ways of worshiping God as India has, nor has any other culture produced as many images of God to worship. Now, I feel like I, I knew this, but I didn't know, know this until diving into the episode. I feel like our best way into the lore is to reference our LGBTQIA source guide for these series of episodes, Castle's Encyclopedia of Queer Myth, Symbol, and Spirit. We're going to start off with the deity at the heart of today's episode, Arhanore Shara, the lord whose half is woman, represents a transgendered being created by the union of the Hindu deities Shiva and Shakti. Arhanore Shara, above all, speaks to the totality that lies beyond duality. In Chinese Taoism, this concept is symbolized by the coming together of yin and yang. Like the Greek god Hermes, Arhanarishara is associated with communication. The intermediate being often serves to mediate between women and men, mortals and deities, and between other entities. For this reason, Arhanarishara is said to dwell in the chakra, sacred center of the human body, of the throat. In Tantra, this chakra is also sometimes associated with oral intercourse linking the deity not only to androgyny, but also to homoeroticism. Arhanarishara was served by gender-variant cross- or mixed-dressing priests. To devotees, Arhanarishara, like Ganesha, Shiva's non-biological son, brings prosperity. In artistic depictions, Arhanarishara is typically shown with the left half of his body being female and the right half male. The female, Shakti, or Parvati, or Uma, is usually garbed in red and often holds a lotus, while the male, Shiva, wears a tiger skin or an ascetic's cloth around the waist. The skin of the female half is tan, while that of the male half is light blue. His slash her gaze is pensive and serene. His slash her pose is sensuous and inviting. The cult of Arhanarishara appears to have reached pinnacle during the 10th through 12th centuries, and again, in the 18th and early 19th centuries, when he-slash-she became a popular subject in sculpture and painting. So, right off the bat, and we'll get into it more, but the encyclopedia calls Adhanarishara transgendered. This is not the first time I've seen this, but it doesn't seem to be the prevalent interpretation that I've seen. Additionally, I've seen that one particular feminist sect likes to flip this script and say that it's the goddess that has one half of her body, which also just happens to be a man. I've only seen this one group of people that approach it this way, and in my mind, neither the majority nor this group is wrong. It's just in how you phrase it. That said, let's move on to one half of the famed duo, Lord Shiva. Phallic deity of the Hindu pantheon, 
the Lord of Yoga, the Guardian of Animals, the Conqueror of Fear and Suffering, whose worship probably dates to the second millennia BCE. It is Shiva as Nataraj, who dances the world into and out of existence. His attributes include the trident, the crescent moon, the serpent, the tiger, the drum, and the datura flower. The husband of the goddess Parvati, Shiva also shares intimate relationships with the gods Agni and Vishnu. Shiva is also parent to Arhan Aurishara when Shiva and Parvati merge into a single transgendered being. He is also parent to Ganesha, who is born, according to some traditions, of a union between Parvati and her handmaiden, Malini. Shiva is occasionally invoked by males engaging in cultic masturbation and homoeroticism. Interesting use of the term parent here, but uh, you understand a bit more about Shiva. Now, as you've seen with both terms so far, there are a ton of gods and goddesses just in these two entries alone. This is going to be very uncharacteristic of me, but I'm actually not going to go over all of the entries. I'm going to stick to the three deities that we go over today, the god, the goddess, and Ardhanarishra. So, on to our goddess, as described in the first entry as Shakti, and in the second entry as Parvati. Hindu great goddess, sometimes identified with Parvati, as the spouse or feminine nature, or aspect, of Shiva. Shakti is frequently employed, somewhat as yin is employed by Taoists, to refer to feminine energy in general, wherever it is discovered. For instance, Parvati's bath symbolizes the locus of power associated with her sexuality, her Shakti. Similarly, while the god Ganesha is occasionally said to be married, he is most frequently depicted as unmarried, as incapable of reproducing by ordinary means, and as surrounded by feminine beings who are in truth feminine emanations, shaktis of his own androgynous nature. Now, I think that's a wonderfully interesting definition that gives us more questions than answers and more information about Ganesha than Shakti. Let's give you the Parvati entry as well. Lady of the Mountain, Parvati is a manifestation of the Hindu great, or mother, goddess. As such, she is sometimes identified with Shakti, the goddess and principle of feminine energy. She is the spouse of Shiva, the mother of Ganesha, and beloved of her handmaiden, Malini. When Parvati, or Shakti, and Shiva merge, they become the androgynous, or transgendered, Arhan Arishara. So again, not as in-depth of an entry as Shiva, but are we sensing a theme yet? Yeah, yes, of course in this encyclopedia, but, uh, hmm, just in terms of the world? In order to provide some contrast to this, I hope that you enjoyed what I've done with today's tale. What I would highly suggest is to review the entire Indian pantheon. It is just indescribably beautiful and highly engrossing, and it, uh, it'll really, really make you think. For instance, I know that some of my people, as soon as they heard me say Ganesha, in the first entry were like, oh, shit, let's get some of this elephant, son. Ganesha is one of the most well-known of the Indian deities, and, and I don't mean any disrespect when I say is adorable, just bonkers adorable. Ganesha does have an entry in this encyclopedia, and it was it was absolutely eye-opening. I, I didn't realize or know, I mean, at least 60% of the entry. So um, 
I'm not going to tell you about it today. You are going to have to go to your library and check out a copy. Or you know what? Just dust the old web browser off to find more info. Because today, today is all about Arhana Rishara. And we hope that you enjoy. Once, very long ago, there was a deity that was both man and woman. This intersex deity was said to have come about in a number of different ways. Depending on the storyteller, they might describe to you a moment where a demon was in pursuit of a goddess. Chased all over creation, the goddess ended up back in her royal chamber before manifesting her avatar, which was half god and half goddess. When the demon arrived at the chamber door, it was both confused and in awe. It slunk away in defeat, and the goddess, particularly pleased with this new manifestation, decided to keep it. Another storyteller might describe how a goddess and a god promised to be each other's one and only. One day, looking deep into the god's heart, the goddess saw a vision of a woman she did not recognize. Heartbroken, the goddess recoiled and fled. This damaged both the god and the goddess for they had metaphorically become one. Under great duress, the god finally found the goddess. When she explained what had happened, the god weakly laughed and opened up his heart in order for her to look again. She did, and realized the vision she saw was in fact how the god saw her through his own eyes. With their love renewed, they became one once again, only this time literally. There are stories of prophets slighting the intersex deity and being punished for it, and of the intersex deity manifesting through a tantric embrace and being rewarded for it. One of these very such stories starts at the beginning of creation. At the beginning, there was nothing. And then, there was Brahma. Born from itself, Brahma was the progenitor of all things. The universe as a whole and the primordial beings that were to exist there all came from Brahma, the supreme creator. Once the die had been cast, Brahma looked upon creation and smiled. That was the hard part. Now, creation was in the hands of the beings that lived within it. Brahma bid the beings well and was prepared to leave creation when these godlings spoke up. He wanted to know what they should do next. Brahma let them know creation was theirs to do with as they pleased. It hoped that they would choose wisely, and it supposed that they would want to start a line of descendants in order to inherit creation after they were gone. Only, the primordial creatures had no idea how to do this. Brahma assured them they would figure it out. Exiting creation, Brahma was very happy. After quite some time, and returning to creation, Brahma was very surprised. Everything from the lowliest of creatures to the most elevated of divinity had expired. There were no generations after them to take their place. Unsure of what might have happened, Brahma once again lit the fuse of life 
and brought a whole new wave of beings into creation. Only, once again, they had no idea how to create life themselves. Though Brahma had a great deal of patience, watching life not be able to continue on its own perplexed and saddened the Creator to no end. Knowing that it was time to ask for help, Brahma looked outside of creation. Brahma was positive that the goddess Parvati and the god Shiva would be able to help guide creation, performing rite after rite and ceremony after ceremony. Brahma's call was finally heard, and the god and goddess, husband and wife, deity and deity, appeared before the Supreme Creator. Thankful beyond words, the exhausted Brahma fell to its knees. Each grabbing a shoulder, Shiva and Parvati lifted the Creator to a sitting position and all three held a palaver in that position. Though Brahma explained in great detail what was the matter with life, Parvati had felt it the instant she entered creation. Smiling to herself, she slid her hand into Shiva's, and with a simple glance, the god knew what the goddess was thinking and why the two had been called there. When Brahma finished the story, the two deities bade it to look deeper at the life that it had created, to look at what had been missed. Brahma did, and at first could not see what they were talking about. Looking back and forth between life and the god and goddess, Brahma saw Shiva and Parvati curl their arms together, when before its eyes, they became one. Brahma was the first entity within creation to meet Adhan Arishara. The intersex deity smiled and told Brahma, in order to thrive, in order to move forward, in order to be complete, creation needed to find itself. Or better yet, creation needed to find itself in another. Once again, Brahma was very surprised. Amazed and enlightened by the deity in front of it, Brahma was so thankful to see such a congregation of male and female energy. But confusion won the moment as the Creator offered a rebuttal. Brahma didn't want one life to have to rely on another. Shouldn't that be the choice of life itself? The intersex deity smiled even wider and responded, Absolutely. However, in order to bring balance, to continue life, one or more than one need to share their energy with another. There should be a balance between the feminine and the masculine, a balance that lived outside of gender and beyond it. The important part of the equation was balance. Brahma looked closer and for the first time recognized not one living thing was with a mate which was fine for the beings created. Being alone is not necessarily the same as being lonely. However, in order to bring about another generation, there needs to be balance, Brahma whispered to itself. The intersex deity nodded and offered up some of its own feminine energy. The presence of Parvati spread throughout the universe and helped to manifest the feminine alongside the masculine, and allowed for the next generation to exist. Brahma embraced Arhan, Arishara, and thanked them deeply for their knowledge, for their assistance, for their energy. The deities looked towards the outskirts of creation and then back at life, which had already begun to take root in developing another generation. 
Adhanurishara asked Brahma if the deity would mind them staying in creation, maybe just a little bit longer. Brahma smiled and said it was thinking about doing the exact same thing. And, according to the Hindu religion of India and people all over the world, that is a retelling of many of the stories about their intersex, androgynous deity. Now, I know I kind of I kind of change up the flow this time around, right? You know, I'm experimenting with a few things. Uh, over the past few episodes and really uh, throughout the show, I've worked on balancing, get it, get it, uh, the want to tell stories as they were and um, the need to have them evolve with the times. I've, I've never been able to quite master it in my mind, but uh, I was pretty happy with how things came together for this episode. I mean... I was able to give you a handful of versions, although the first few were, were literally a paragraph or less, but you got to see them each for their thesis instead of uh, combining portions for you to get uh, a type of one Frankenstein myth. You know. That being said, anyone familiar with this story will know where I like slightly would have phrased things differently. Um, Shiva, Shiva is like the dude. He like top dude. I mean... He's thought to be the perfect man. So think about what that brought to the table thousands of years ago. Uh, that is uh, that's a lot of masculine energy. I'm not saying there's n anything wrong with masculine energy, but uh, the 20th century kind of took masculinity in a toxic direction. And by kind of, I mean absolutely and totally. So let's, let, let's not do that anymore. Uh, so in my version, I, I made it like, I made it dude light. Uh, there's only one line in the entire piece in, in the retelling that alludes to what I'm about to say, but otherwise I kept it, uh, neutral and more, more about identity than gender, but the, the myth as it is, uh, written and retold, Brahma makes everything a dude. <laughs> so... That's why they were stuck. Um, I feel like anybody that knows me or is oh, uh, familiar with the podcast, they know that I'm not going to advocate for that world. So, nor do I think that anything needs to be any of, of one thing. Um, so I made it more about finding your ideal partner, which is really what I think the takeaway of the myth is. And uh, that line from Brahma uh, talking about how you good on your lonesome. That ain't never happened either. And think about it logistically. Back in the day, you had to have like 20 kids. That's, I'm, I'm, come on, this would be real because like 10 of them are going to die. So you, you just have to do that. You're, you're not by yourself. You, you need others to, to work. Uh, distant pasts, partnering up, it's, it's like it's how you evaded predators. Besides that, like, you know, so many studies show we're, we're social creatures. We're going to inhabit each other's space. That's, that's what we do. When you go back hundreds, thousands, more more recent past, I feel like you get together and you you propagate because it's, uh, you're, you're building a family, you're securing your legacy. Um, it's, 
more of a choice than a need. I would say some people would definitely uh, disagree with me there. And they hit, hit me up, man. Talk about it in the comments. Let me know what you think. And I, I'm very, very curious what people think in terms of the necessity in either propagating or or being together. Uh, because kind of adjacent issue, no matter what YouTube or your uh, your uncle says, we are not anywhere near overpopulating the earth. So if someone wants to be by themselves, it's good, man. You do you do no harm. Try the best that you can to, to just do you. That is uh, another reason why I didn't want to make this really hingent on a guy and girl partnering. Personally, I think the heart of the story is absolutely mwah, wonderfully sweet, and I love the Steven Universe, DBZ, Fusion takeaways, but for those in the audience that don't identify with this or are asexual or have issues with 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 contact of any kind, let alone literally be mer being merged with your partner, we got you. It's about your internal energy. That, that may come through with another for some of you, and that, that may not be defined by another with others. It's all good. Do good, be good, be yourself. I think that's what's most important. And for our fact, we're going to do something a little different today, which is lovely par for the course with our current series of LGBTQIA folklore and mythology. Anyone familiar with the people of the Indian subcontinent are more than likely aware of their third gender, the Hedras. So as I alluded to in the opening, and not alluded to, as I actually, I just flat out said, in the opening, instead of talking about one person, we're going to talk about a bunch of people. Prior to researching this episode, I knew of them, but I had absolutely no idea of the depth and breadth of these humans until I started jumping into their backstory. One of the things that I saw mentioned in one of the many journal articles that we'll also link to in the show notes that I absolutely loved because it put it in an interesting context for a Westerner such as myself is that over the past 100, past 50, past 20 years, Western systems and religions have done a great number of things in simply giving light or identifying those in the LGBTQIA community. Now, I said it that way. I denote these things as things because... Come on, let's be adults. Most of the actions and events, though not all, have really not been positive moments for anyone involved. And it shames me, saddens me, disgusts me, and angers me to even live in a world or society that does so. However, the Hydra community is venerated thousands of years in the past in two holy Indian texts, the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. Written as early as 7th century BCE up to 3rd century CE, the Ramayana itself is one of the largest ancient epics on the planet. In the tome, it's said that the Lord Rama went into exile for 14 years. To worship him further, his people wanted to follow him, but he ordered all men and all women back to their homes. When he emerged from his exile, the third gender hijras were there waiting for him. Amazed by their cunning 14-year devotion, he blessed them with the ability to bless others during marriages and childbirth. In the Mahabharata, Arjuna, who is like Hercules mixed with Batman, also went into exile where he assumed the identity of a Hydra. Outside of literature, there have been famous Hydras spread throughout history as well. 
between the 14 and 1800s prior to and during the reign of the Mughal Empire throughout what would eventually become India, Hijras had significant seats of power through the government. This actually transcends religion and how the region was ruled at the time by either Hindu or Muslim rulers. Flash forward to present day, where there are estimated to be 3 million Hijras living in India alone. What I didn't know is that, like many things across the globe, there's not really a Western equivalent to a Hijra. It's very easy to say from a Western perspective that Hijra means transgendered. However, from what I understand, that's not exactly the case. Now, I did read conflicting opinions, both Etic and Emic, about what a clear definition is. So I'm sorry if I'm way off base here. But I feel like a hijra can be defined as neither male nor female, and that a hijra can either be born as someone that may be identified as intersex or made as someone that may be identified as transgendered. Again, I'm trying to do something that I've explained in past episodes not to do, and that's assign our cultural terms to other cultural norms and identities. It is also seemingly confusing in the eyes of the government and the law, being that the Indian Supreme Court passed a transgender rights bill that describes intersex people as being transgendered. On one hand, the Supreme Court passing a transgendered rights bill. That's awesome. On the other hand... <laughs> Uh, lumping a, a group of people in together that you just don't understand, that's not, not, the, not the most awesome. Many have called for this bill to be amended and drafted to give intersex people, you know, their own identity, as well as protections. Except for the definitions portion of the bill up at the top, which links intersex to transgender, they're, they're, they're not mentioned in the bill at all. So probably, hopefully get the chance to fix that. Now, earlier, I called the Hydra another cultural norm because in India, they absolutely are. Which brings with it all sorts of terrible behavior. Because we're going to now look at the British and colonialism. In 1852, a Hydra was brutally murdered. And during the trial, the British judges did something utterly barbaric, but not unbelievable if you've been following history of any kind on this planet. They took this opportunity to lambast the Hydras as unnatural prostitutes, beggars, and a reproach to the British government. Remember, this was them searching for a killer. Instead of doing that, they incited a moral panic among the British, which led to the Criminal Tribes Act of 1871, which saw the Hydras monitored, forced to effing register, stigmatized in their own neighborhoods and country, and ultimately brought the community closer together. As we've seen through human tragedy after human tragedy, when forced with what was an obvious attempt at extermination of a people, which uh, last time I checked, it's called genocide, the Hydra have ever since provided a safe haven for those who are persecuted for their identities from family, ostracized from society because of their class or social status, or physically or mentally abused by both, simply for being who they are. I originally had written here the percentage of children born intersex, which is 10,000 plus per year in India alone, and the horrible and barbaric things that humans do to their children because the appearance of their genitals do not fit the heteronormative world that we live in. However, as important as I think it is that everyone understand what it is that intersex individuals have to go through from birth, an 11th hour reconsideration made me change this part a little bit 
to give you a quick look at what hijras do and what they're about. First, when brought into the community, a young hijra is mentored by a teacher, and yes, you can thank Sanskrit and Pan-Indian culture, because this is where the term guru comes from. Very pious people, they take their duties seriously, which includes performing songs, dances, and blessings at Hindu birth and wedding celebrations. These blessings help a child with eventual success and longevity, and the ancient powers given to the hijra allow them to bless or curse a family at their discretion. Though hijra say they will only lay down a curse due to an extreme circumstance, most treat the hijra with a healthy dose of fear alongside respect, which in my mind is a hell of a good look. And that's the show, folks. Thank you so very much as we took a look at the Hindu and their intersex deity, Arhan Arishara. Please come with us again next time when we hit the last stop on our LGBTQIA journey with a super badass queer goddess of both heaven and the underworld from the Middle Eastern cradle of civilization. As always, I'd like you to put your hands together for all good folks and their crazy catchy tune which bookends the podcast, Mr. Mischief. Let's get a nice round of applause for Jacqueline with her podcast cover artwork, and let's all get a clapping for Arthur with his podcast logo. Last but not least, it's time to bring the house down for you, our audience, listeners of the lore, takers of the tales. If you happen to have any suggestions, uh uh-oh, that's right, any myths you'd like to see explored, any cultures you'd like examined, email us at info at coloredfolklore.com. If composing an email is just a a little smidge, tiny bit too much work, we got the social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and more. And uh, I'm done with school now. So yes, yes, that is is what I've been waiting for. So I will uh, hopefully be able to catch up with, uh, with our accounts. Probably. If you have time, and we sure hope you will, check out the show's website. It's at www.coloredfolklore.com. Our ally page has friends to the show. Episodes page has our episodes first to most recent because you can always catch the reverse on our homepage. And most importantly, support. Our support page details ways and those you can help. This is the time and moment that I'd like to talk about our website host, podcastpage.io. They are seriously so incredible. We are, we're, we're very, very beyond happy going through them. And we had, we had an issue the other day that was very small, but uh, they seriously fixed it in, um, I don't know, four minutes. I have the timestamped emails and it was just uncanny. They were incredibly fast and nice. And if you have a podcast and you're interested in getting a webpage for it, we cannot suggest them enough. Tom, my guy. Thanks, dude. Thank you seriously very, very much. Hey, be like Tom. That's the takeaway. Be nice. Give back. Give your time. Give your energy. Donate. Donate something. Donate anything. My daughter, as I literally speak, is putting together both feminine kits for less fortunate younger women and food bags for protesters on the front line. I'd highly, highly suggest if you have the time or if you have the means, if you have the resources, do the exact same thing or do your thing. You know, do anything. Do everything if you can. No snark today. Don't worry. Don't worry. I don't think I'll be able to keep up with this positivity forever. So I'm I'm pretty sure there are going to be some wise-ass comment coming your way after the credits only next episode. Just you wait. 
Ha <laughs> ha, still got one in there.